Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. One of the great stories of the Bible is the story of the Exodus. It's in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Exodus, and, and you know the story. It's a story that's been told many times. It's a story that's been told in many ways. Major motion pictures have been made about the Exodus. The children of Israel spent over 400 years in captivity in the nation of Egypt. 400 plus years, the Bible tells us, they were slaves in the nation of Egypt. For 400 years, God's people cried out to him, asking him for deliverance. Generation after generation, crying out to God for deliverance. And finally, God heard the cry of his people, and in his sovereign plan, he introduced a man named Moses. And Moses was sent to the land of Egypt to lead the children of God out of captivity. But there was an obstacle. His name was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not willing to let the people of God go. Moses came in and argued his case. And Pharaoh said, absolutely not. I will not let God's people go. And you know how the story went as there was a back and forth between them to the point that it led to God sending a series of plagues on the land of Egypt. One after another, these devastating nationwide plagues, things like the water, all of the water in Egypt turned to blood. The Nile River turned to blood. And Pharaoh, after that happened, said, okay, yes, I'll let God's people go. And then when God miraculously turned the, the water back to water, then Pharaoh changed his mind and said, no, I'm not letting God's people go. So one after another, these plagues came, things like boils, things like locusts, things like frogs, over and over again, overran the nation of Egypt. And every time Pharaoh would repent and say, yes, I'll let them go. And then after the plague was removed, he would change his mind and say, no, I'm not letting God's people go. Till finally it came down to the last plague. It was a plague called the death of the firstborn. And it was decreed that on this particular night, the firstborn child of every person living in the land of Egypt would die. But God made a provision for his people. He said, if you'll take a lamb an unblemished and spotless lamb and sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and place it over 
the door of the house and place it on the posts on the side of the door. He said, when the death angel comes into the land of Egypt, everywhere he sees the blood, he will pass over that house and no death will come to that house. So that's exactly what happened. The people of God offered this sacrifice and they put the blood over the door and on the doorposts of the house. It says in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13, the Bible said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And most of you know how the story goes. The, the, the death angel came. All the firstborn in Egypt were destroyed. They were killed except for those that had the blood over the door. And that finally broke Pharaoh's will. And he allowed Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. From that point forward in the history of the Jewish people, Every year, there was a significant celebration called Passover. The Passover was a celebration of that faithful act of God in history. When through the provision of the sacrifice of the blood, he passed over their house. And so for centuries... Millennium, the people of God would look back on the faithfulness of God and celebrate the Passover. But the Passover meant something more than just looking backwards. The people of God would celebrate Passover looking forward to the promise of a Messiah who one day would come and ultimately fulfill what had been portrayed through the image of the Passover. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. In God's sovereign timeline, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ took place during the celebration of the Passover. On the eve before his crucifixion, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He's looking back on that glorious provision of God in the Old Testament through the man Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. But they're also looking forward to the promise of a Messiah. And in the middle of the Passover celebration, Jesus introduces them to a new celebration. Let's read about it in Matthew 26, beginning in verse number 17. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? What was that? That celebration of what had happened in the past. And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did just as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared 
the Passover. Verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. What were they doing? They were celebrating the Passover. That meal that looked backwards on all that God had done in his faithfulness in Egypt. And that meal that looked forward to all that God was going to accomplish through the Messiah. Now skip down to verse 26. Look what it says. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. On the eve of his crucifixion, while celebrating this Passover meal that looked back on what God had done and looked forward to the promise of the Messiah, Jesus, right in that context, interrupts them and introduces them to a new celebration. He took the bread and he said, I want you to take this bread and eat it because this bread is my body. And then he said, I want you to take this cup and I want you to drink it because this cup is my blood, which I'm about to shed for you. Now, again, we read that with a lot of historical perspective because we already know what happened that evening when they went to the Mount of Olives. After they sang that hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus was arrested. He was run through a series of mock trials. The next day he was beaten. Then he was crucified on a cross, was buried on Sunday morning, rose again from the dead. But when Jesus said this to his disciples in the middle of this Passover meal, none of that had happened yet. They did not fully grasp or understand all that was about to take place. But in the events that followed, they would have begun to understand the significance of this moment like they could have never understood it on this evening. Jesus gave them a new supper, a new practice. And here's what's different about what he's given us in the Lord's Supper and what the Old Testament saints celebrated in Passover. In Passover, they were celebrating looking forward to a Messiah who one day would come and fulfill all that had been promised through the Old Testament pictures. But now with what we're celebrating today called the Lord's Supper, we don't celebrate just looking forward. We get to celebrate looking back on all that Jesus has already accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. So out of these verses of Scripture, I want to share with you three things that we get to enjoy today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number one, we have a sacrifice to remember. 
Jesus gave us this practice to remember all that he'd accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if we're going to be honest this morning, if we're going to just be real transparent, some of us as followers of Jesus would have to admit that often life gets busy. We get distracted. We let the circumstances and situations of our life begin to overwhelm us. And unfortunately, we take for granted the amazing love and grace of God that was demonstrated for us on the cross. I mean, just think about it. When's the last time you just pressed pause for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? And all you did during that time was just think about all that Jesus has accomplished for you through his death, burial, and resurrection. The reality is most of us get busy, we get to do in life, and we we lose sight of and we take for granted all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And Jesus gave his disciples and he gave us this practice so that at least as often as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would take a few moments and we would think about and we would reflect on the glory of all that's been accomplished for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both Paul and Luke tell us something about this supper that that Matthew didn't tell us. Look what it says in Luke 22 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we gather together as the people of God in cultures and countries all over the world? Why do God's people gather together and carry out this practice of the Lord's Supper? I mean, we say all the time, following Jesus is not about rules and regulations. It's not about rituals and ceremonies. It's not about do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations. Following Jesus is all about an intimate love relationship with God. Then why in the world do we as God's people carry out this thing called the Lord's Supper? Here's why. He gave it to us so that we would remember all that Jesus accomplished for us. The word remembrance is a powerful word. It's a Greek word that literally means memorial. A memorial is is a word that indicates calling back into our minds a vivid experience from the past. I think all of us in this room would say, you know what? I've attended more memorial services in my life than I ever wanted to go to, right? What's a memorial service? A memorial service is a service that is designed to allow you and I the opportunity to remember the life of someone who has died and celebrate all that they live for. That's what a memorial does. We come together and we remember. Often we tell stories. We Now with today's technology, they often show things on video. And we hear the story of somebody's life. And we take a few moments to remember and reflect over all that was accomplished through their life. Jesus gave us this supper. He gave us this practice for you and I to press pause on our life. And to sit for a few moments and think and reflect on all. All that has been accomplished for us through the death, burial, and resurrection. Alan Redpath said it this way. He said, the Lord's Supper, it is the one who has given something for us at Calvary. Asking each of us to remember his death. To put that at the very center of our Christian experience. 
It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and often the barrenness of all our pressure and work that we might wait upon him in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. He points us back not to his life or example, but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel, the atonement of the cross, the finished work of Calvary, and the open tomb. So here's what we're going to do this morning in just a few moments. In just a few moments, as a part of our worship, we're going to take the bread and the cup. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. Don't just go through the motions. Too many churches take the Lord's Supper, and it's a little five-minute thing they tag on at the end of the service as you're walking out the door. And I believe Jesus gave us this supper for something so much more significant than that. We're to pause. We're to reflect. We're to allow some moments of solitude to think about all that's been accomplished for us through the death, burial, and resurrection. When we take that bread, the bread, he said, is a symbol of his body. What does that mean? It's talking about the great doctrine of the the incarnation that God took on humanity. I don't think we'll ever grasp the wonder, the, the, the amazing truth that God who existed outside of the parameters of time, God who created everything, you and I can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell, that same God who was eternal at a point in time, he entered time that he created. And he did not come in uh, from the clouds riding in with the angels. He came in born of a virgin, a little baby, a human being into this world. God became a man. The Bible says about him in Colossians chapter 3 that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. When you and I take that bread today, it is a symbol that Jesus took on humanity so that he could offer that body as a sinless sacrifice for your sin and my sin. John MacArthur said about this humanity, he said, God took on humanity The infinite became finite. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. When we take the bread, we're reminded that Jesus became a man. He laid aside the privileges of being God. Why would he do that? So that he could perfectly fulfill the law. And his perfect fulfillment of the law qualified him as the unique one and only who could offer his body as a sacrifice for our sins. And then when we take the cup, we're to think about the blood that he shed. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to hear me say something this morning. Some people think that Jesus died on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. Listen to me. He didn't die for you and I so that you and I wouldn't have to. He died for us because we couldn't. You and I were never qualified 
to be a sacrifice for our sins. You and I could die for all eternity. And in dying for all eternity, you and I do not possess enough righteousness to, 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 to satisfy the wrath of God for a single solitary sin in our life. There was nothing we could do. We were helpless and we were hopeless. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son into this world and he took on humanity and he died as the only qualified sacrifice for our sins. When we take the Lord's Supper today, we're to reflect on and remember that but for the grace of God, we'd be hopelessly and helplessly lost. We have a sacrifice to remember. The second thing we have is we have a story to share. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're telling an amazing story. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 28. He looked at his disciples and he said, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, what's the next word? Many, for the forgiveness of sins. That word many must have jumped out at them as he spoke it. Because here was this little band of disciples. Now, by this point in the conversation, Judas had already left the room. There were only 11 of them left. Many is not what they were. The word many is the word Greek word polus. We get our English word metro, metropolis from it. it. It describes multitudes of people. It's describing a vast number of people and here they were 11 little men in an upper room with Jesus and Jesus says what I'm about to do is so that many can come to know me that's why he told them after his resurrection in Mark chapter 16 to go into all the world and preach the gospel you know what we do every time we take the Lord's Supper we proclaim the gospel that through the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Anyone can turn from their sin and be forgiven and experience the grace that brings them into a personal relationship with God. I had a lunch appointment this week with a special man of God, Pastor Herman Grahams. You may or may not have ever heard of Pastor Herman Grahams, but Pastor Herman served in ministry for over 60 years. 60 years of faithful service to the Lord Jesus Christ in gospel ministry. I think I saw him in the service here this morning. There he is right there. Pastor Herman, wave at us. He's sitting right there this morning. I had give t- Praise the Lord for him. Amen. Listen, this week I had the privilege of having lunch with him. Now, when I get around somebody who's been in ministry that long, I want to ask some questions. And so I, I leaned in early in the lunch, and I said, Pastor Herman, listen, if, there is, if there's one piece of advice after 60-plus years in ministry, one thing that you could say to a guy in ministry today, what would you say? And he leaned up in his seat, and he leaned across the table, and he said three words, preach the gospel. Listen to me. You and I have not been called to preach a message of prosperity. 
You and I have not been called to preach a message of self-help. You and I have not been called to preach a message of pop psychology. You and I have been called by Jesus to proclaim the glorious good news of the gospel. The gospel can save people. D.L. Moody was once asked, if you can only have one verse in the Bible to preach the gospel, what's that one verse? Here's what D.L. Moody said. He said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look what it says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what that means. Jesus came into this world. He took on humanity. He lived a sinless life, but then he offered that body on a cross. And the Bible says that God in his infinite grace and wisdom took all of your sin and he took all of my sin, every lustful thought, every wicked act, every wrong attitude, every bitter word. He took all of my sin and all of your sin and on the cross, The Bible says Jesus became sin for us. All of the wrath of God was poured out against sin on the person of Jesus. And when Jesus died, he experienced the full blow of the wrath of a holy God against sin. But he did not stay dead. He rose again from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And the Bible says he did that so that we might become, don't miss this, the righteousness of what? God. Here's what some people think. Some people think that because of Jesus, now God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. That's not true. Because you know what that would be? That would be man's best righteousness. He did not say, so that we might become man's best righteousness. You see, if God in Christ simply restored us to a position that Adam had before the fall, we'd just be Adam all over again. That's going to hit some of you later, and you're going to shout about it. Because here's what the Bible teaches. He didn't just restore me to Adam, so I'm Adam before the fall. The Bible says that in Christ, Jesus took all of my sin, and here's what I got. I got the righteousness of God imputed to my account. It means this. It means that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me as somebody who's a sinner that's been forgiven. He sees me as righteous as the son of God himself. Do I deserve that? No, but I've been given that by grace. That's the gospel that we get to proclaim. And every time we celebrate this supper, if we unpack it and are honest, we proclaim the good news of the gospel. Then here's the last thing. We have a promise to celebrate. We have a promise to celebrate. Look at verse number 29. He said, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's 
kingdom. Jesus said, hey, boys, it's the last time we're going to do this together for a minute. But one day I'm coming back, and we'll have a party then in my Father's kingdom. What day is he talking about? He's talking about that day in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when the Bible says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. Thus we will always be with the Lord. You see, now we gather on a Sunday to celebrate a supper in his honor. But when he comes again, we will have a feast in his presence. So we're celebrating. A promise. We just unpacked it for five weekends about heaven and where we're headed. We're celebrating that today. But before we take the Lord's Supper together, I want you to see one other verse of Scripture out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, and he gives a prescription to the church for how they are to take the Lord's Supper. And listen to what he said in verse 28. He said, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine. It's a word that means to test by questioning. And here's what Paul challenges us, that you and I should never rush through the motions of taking the Lord's Supper without asking some questions of our own heart. And it starts by asking questions about your relationship with God. And the first question is very simple. Do I know God? Look at this question. Do I know God? Listen, if you don't know God, this practice, this supper is meaningless. Anything you're about to eat off one of these tables, you can buy at the grocery store. There's nothing spiritual, nothing magical, nothing mystical about any of it. The only significance it has is when I've come to know Jesus, I am celebrating, I am remembering all that he's accomplished for me. Listen, Jesus plus anything is wrong. Some people believe that I need Jesus and the Lord's Supper or Jesus and baptism or Jesus and faithfulness to be saved. Listen, it's just Jesus. Jesus is all we need. We don't do any of this today to earn grace, to earn favor, to earn merit with God. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you don't need a ceremony. You need a Savior. If you don't know Jesus, you don't need a ritual. You need a relationship with God. Do I know him? Listen, if you don't know him today, before you even think about coming to one of these tables, you need to come to Jesus and give your life to him. Here's the second question. Is there anything in my life that I know is not right with God? Unconfessed sin. Open rebellion. Impure relationship. Unforgiveness towards someone. 
The list goes on and on and on and on. We don't have time to read it, but later on in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this is so serious. This is so serious that some, he said in the book of 1 Corinthians, some were sick and some had died because they dishonored the Lord by not examining their own heart before taking the Lord's Supper. Just flippantly going through the motions. We need to examine ourselves. Is there anything in your relationship with God that's not right? Anything that he's put his finger on that you need to deal with, turn away from and embrace God's forgiveness. But then we should not only examine our relationship with God, we should examine our relationship with each other. One of the reasons that Paul wrote what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 is because there were divisions that had surfaced between brothers and sisters in Christ. And he talked about the shame that it was to come to the Lord's table while there was division between one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. Roy Hessian says this in the Calvary Road. He said, Now the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was not only to bring men back into fellowship with God, but also into fellowship with their fellow men. Everything that comes as a barrier between us and another, be it ever so small, comes as a barrier between us and God. So the question is simple. Is there anything not right in my relationships inside the family of God? Anything not right in my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? So here's what's about to happen. We're about to have a time where we respond to the Lord today. It's a little bit of worship chaos, if you're all right with that. We're about to do four things at once. I'm going to go ahead and invite our team to come and move into place. So they're going to lead us in worship here in just a moment. We're going to do four things here over the next few minutes together, and then we're going to be done today. The first thing that we're going to do is have a time of examination. When our team begins to lead us in song in just a moment, I want you to begin to examine your heart. Do you know the Lord? Is there any unconfessed sin in your life if you do know the Lord? Is there anything broken in a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ? It's an opportunity for us to do some soul searching, to allow the Spirit of God to search us and examine us. And second thing we're going to do is we're going to have a time of intercession. We're going to have some pastors that are going to be here along the front. We have about four of us that are going to be here in just a moment. And maybe you're here today and God put something on your heart and you just need to pray with a pastor. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you want to give your life to Christ. You can come to one of these pastors and we'd be honored to have somebody sit down with you and show you how you could begin a personal relationship with God. Or maybe you just want to come and get in one of these altars. Maybe during that time of examination, the Spirit of God puts something on your heart and you want to just come and take a minute to be alone with God before you go to the Lord's table. So we're going to have a time of examination, time of intercession. These pastors are going to be here. If there's something in your job, your health, your family, a relationship, and you just want a pastor to pray over you, we're going to be here. So examination, intercession. Here's the third thing, worship. We're going to worship God by taking the Lord's Supper together. We have about seven stations, I think, around the room. 
where we have table hosts that are going to be serving the Lord's Supper. You can go to any one of them. All seven are the same. Some are back here in the back. Some in the corners back there. Some in the corners up here. It just works better if everybody kind of spreads out. So you just go as you feel led during this season of worship. Once you've examined your heart, once you've spent some time talking to the Lord, reflecting on all that he's done for you, you go to one of these tables and they'll serve you the Lord's Supper. Then once you've done that, you make your way back to, the, to your seat. And the fourth thing we're going to do is we're just going to praise God. We're going to praise God for what he's done. We're going to praise God for who he is. We're going to praise God for the gospel and for salvation and forgiveness. So we're going to do all four of those things at once. Examination, intercession, worship, praise. What I'm going to invite you to do is follow as the Spirit leads you through that process. When you feel like you've examined your heart, maybe you've been doing that all through the service and you're done with that. When When you feel like you've examined your heart and you've poured out your heart before the Lord, you can come to one of these altars, come to one of these pastors if you want to. When you feel like all that's done, then you go to one of these tables. You take the Lord's Supper. Then you come back and you join in a chorus of praise as we worship God and celebrate this practice that he's given us that allows us to remember all that he's accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, we pray in this moment that you would speak. God, would you have your way? Lord, lead us as a fellowship to worship. We bless you, Lord. God, I pray for those that are here today that don't know Jesus. I pray today that they would come and give their lives to Christ and be saved. Lord, have your way in this time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.